Well, good morning, and uh, especially if you're joining us and you're watching online in the live stream, uh, we're glad that you are here with us as well. Um, I, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Here? <laughs> Amen. I ain't going to need that kind of energy over there, Shannon. Uh, Redemption Church is one church with 10 congregations all throughout the state of Arizona, uh, and as we're all gathering here together, we're glad that you are with us here at Gilbert. Um, if you have a Bible, we are back in the book of John, finally, yeah, and uh, yeah, we've been out for quite a few weeks now, a good stretch of time, but we are back in the Gospel of John now. So John chapter 6 uh, is where we're going to be, and we want you to join us there. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to have the text on the screen so that you can follow um, along. Uh, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, you can always get uh, the YouVersion app, or even the Redemption Gilbert app has uh, the, the scriptures on there too, so you can use your phone, smart device with that. The story that we're going to look at this morning is a major event in the life of Jesus, and then John 6 opens. Jesus is a like serious trending topic in society. He's been healing. His teachings are radical. His reputation is soaring. He's got quite the following of people flocking to see the Jesus show. And what John is going to push us and what he has been pushing us towards in his gospel account and his writings uh, is to deal with, and it's funneling towards, the authority of Jesus. And what John wants the hearers and the readers to really wrestle with is the authority of Jesus versus the autonomy of humans, meaning to really have us wrestle with the question, are we better than God? Like, do I really need Jesus to be my God, or can I just be my own God? Now, there's very few people I've ever sat down with who have said to me, you know, I think I'm smarter than God. There's very few people who would just come right out and say that, but we live like that all the time. We, we know that God has said there's a particular way that I want you to structure your life and order your life and live your life, but the way that we functionally live our lives says, I think I'm smarter than what you have planned out for me. And the story that we're going to look at uh, is very familiar. If you've been in church for any time, if you've ever been to a Sunday school class or a vacation Bible school, you've heard this story before. Um, it's the only story that's included in all four gospel accounts. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000, and then we'll look at Jesus walking on the water. But before we open up and before we dive into the scripture, let's spend some time just praying and just inviting God uh, to be here with us. God's everywhere, so he's already here, but we don't always have an awareness of his presence and his power. And the thing that will make this time the best and the most effective and the most transformational is if we submit and have an awareness of his presence and power in this time. So let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll get into it. Father in heaven, we love you. God, we know that you're here. Your word says that you inhabit the praise of your people. And God, um, we have brought with us this morning into this place, I know I have at least, um, a ton of distractions, uh, whether it's anxiety or whether it's fear, um, God, whether it's just things that are consuming us right now in life. And I am praying, God, that in your mercy, you would allow us to really set those things aside. Or better yet, God, you tell us to cast them upon you because you care for us. So God, will we just even right now just cast those anxieties and those fears to you? God, I'm praying for a movement of your spirit because this moment is not about finely crafted phrases. Um, 
or great stories or illustrations. This is a moment, God, where we are asking you to speak to us. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you, would you illuminate your word, God? Would you speak clearly to us? Would you control me? Would you fill me? I'm going to ask um, if you would just pray for you, that God would speak to you. And maybe uh, prayer is not something that's familiar to you. It's not something that you normally do. Maybe none of this is something that's familiar to you, and that's okay. I love that you're here. But in this moment, just ask that God would say something very specific to you. I'm going to ask that you'd pray for me, that God would say something very specific to me, and that through me, he might speak to you. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. So sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and John tells us in verse 4, the Jewish Passover was near. So here's the scene. There's a massive group of people. Uh, most scholars would say that it's, it's actually about 12 to 15,000 people. Some uh, commentaries actually say it's up to upwards of 20,000 people when you include women and children. And they're mostly there because they've seen the power of Jesus, particularly over the, the sick. And he's been doing all kinds of things to help people. And this crowd that's following Jesus, they're not all the die-hard, bought-in, solid Jesus followers. Most of the crowd is made up of people who are like marginally interested in Jesus because of what they think that he might be able to do for them. And it, it would be a lot of kind of like open skeptics. People are like, I'm not really sure what to think about this Jesus, but I want to follow along at least at a distance so maybe I can figure out who he is. And the takeaway there is that Jesus really cares about the people who are on the outside looking in, who are trying to figure out just who he is, and you're going to see that in a moment. John mentions in chapter 4 about the Passover, and the Passover is really the hinge point of this story, and, and John reflects on and mentions the Passover in a couple different spots in his gospel account. Now, the Passover might not mean much to us, but to these first century Palestinian Jews, Passover uh, was kind of like what the 4th of July is to Americans. Uh, it's all about their identity, about their nationalism. It's how they would have understood who they are. And in every culture, there are events and there's stories uh, where that people look to for their identity, who we are, where we come from. Uh, and for the Jews, Passover is that. You see, the Jews believed and were the chosen people of God. They were delivered by God. They were made a people by God. They were provided for by God, fed manna from heaven by God, given land promised to them by God. And every, every year, they would get together to remember this is who we are. And the Passover, if you're not familiar, it's found in Exodus chapters 11 and 12, and it's all about the sacrifice of a lamb, and the spilled blood is applied to doorposts of homes so that judgment might pass over the people of God. 
In fact, in John chapter 1, Jesus says, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John, this whole time, especially as he's speaking to this Jewish audience, is trying to get at the very identity of the people of God, meaning what defines them the most. And, he, and Jesus is saying, look, the Lamb that makes judgment pass over you, that's me. And what he's doing is reminding people that he's the fulfillment of the promises of the Passover. And that's what's happening when Jesus feeds them here. So the, the, the point of what we're going to see Jesus do in just a moment is, is not the bread, because later on he's going to preach a sermon, and we're going to look at that in a few weeks, that he says, I am the bread. But what Jesus is doing here is something far more significant than just simply feeding people. Because what he's saying and, and what he's establishing, he's saying your ultimate identity who you are at your core is not found in a past heritage. It's found in me. That's where he's leading people to. It's what he's pushing people to. Look at verse 5. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward them, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Verse 6, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So he looks at Philip. He says, you're from around here. Where's the nearest Costco? How are we going to feed these people? And in the, in the NLT, uh, Philip answers like this. He says, even if we worked for months, in your version it might mention denarii, which was a, 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 a wage. And he says, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. I want to stop just for a second because Philip says something that all of us have felt or are feeling, and we need to not just try to pass over that tension. I think we need to stop and recognize it because even if we fill in the blank, it wouldn't be enough, is the perfect posture to be a witness to the miracle of God. Did you hear that? If you've ever been in a place where you said, well, even if I had the resources, even if I had the finances, even if I had the strength, even if I had the cure, even if I had the answer, it wouldn't be enough. And a lot of us have been there. And God says, that is the perfect setup to watch me show off. When you can get to the place where you say, God, even if, it wouldn't be enough. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. In fact, I knew you were going to say that. I'm just setting you up, man, so that you can see that I am enough. There's two things that Jesus answers in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. Our fear of not having or being enough. If you've ever experienced that, like an internal anxiety. If I don't have enough, I'm not enough. It's a fear a lot of us, and it's anxiety a lot of us walk around in. There's also the external anxiety the fear of being out of control. We're going to see in the bottom part of this passage, there's this external storm that's all around. Like, I'm totally out of control. Those are anxieties. Those are fears that many of us walk around in. Look at verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and he said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? What's interesting there about Andrew is that Andrew, he loses faith in the middle of a sentence. He, he started out with a small bit of faith, but he couldn't even finish the sentence before he started to doubt that Jesus could do anything with the little bit that he was bringing. 
And I think it's important for us to notice this because sometimes our faith is like Philip, where we just say, we just need more. We just don't have enough. I mean, Andrew, who stole this kid's lunch, uh, now is having second thoughts. And I think that's us a lot of times. We have faith for a second. I, I was looking at that. I was like, why did Andrew bring that lunch in the first place? Why did he even take that? He had to know as soon as he saw like the barley loaves, which connotates that he took it from a very poor young boy and the fish. And he's looking and there's 20,000 people. He had to know in that moment, this is ridiculous, but he still brings it because he believed for a minute. You ever been there? Like I have faith, but as soon as I start to take a step, I was like, this is just, this is stupid. I don't even know why I'm doing this. But I got faith for a moment. I have faith for a minute. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't rebuke him. He moves in power in the midst of this speck of faith. Let that be an encouragement to you. He says in verse 10, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. There's about 5,000 men. The scripture says Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that, they are, left over, that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And the people saw the sign that Jesus performed. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. In verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, if you've ever heard this story before, and a lot of times when we envision the story, we kind of envision it as like Jesus is hosting this giant picnic on a prairie, right? If you're using imagination, you kind of think, and you see the lawn, and the picnic blankets are out, and everyone's like, oh, no, we forgot food. What are we supposed to do, right? And then, then Jesus goes, and he's, hang on, everybody, I got some bread. And then, and then he, and he's like, that's not enough bread. And he's like, how about more bread? And then Jesus becomes kind of like this Oprah out there, and he's like, you get bread, and you get bread, and you get bread. And that's a lot of times like how we envision the story taking place. But what's really happening here, what's really significant here is that this is the start of a revolution. There's something far more significant than just a fish sandwich lunch that Jesus is doing here. Mark actually kind of helps us with some really important context in the story. You don't have to turn there. The text will be on the screen. But it's Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 44, if you want to go back and look at this later. But listen to how Mark relays the story. The apostles gathered around Jesus, reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. So he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they've been out doing ministry, doing work, didn't even have a chance to eat um, and he says, well, let's get something to eat and let's rest. So they went away by themselves to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began te teaching them many things. And by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place that's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? 
He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and, go and see. And they found out, they said, five. We got five loaves. 20,000 people, five loaves, two fish. Jesus directed them to all have the people sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks, and he broke the loaves, and then he gave them to his disciples to distribute the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, and the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. So here's what's happening here. Mark's gospel tells us that the apostles, they returned after being sent out by Jesus to preach and to do ministry, and they came back. The crowds all followed him. Now, the other part in this is that Jesus has just heard that his cousin, the kind of forerunner of Jesus, the person who was telling the world that the Messiah has come, John the Baptist, has been killed. And in many ways for Jesus, it's a reminder of how his own life will end. And so Jesus wants to take some time to process that. And he doesn't want to process that pain in public. He just wants to be alone with his father. But then the people see him and they run around the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And by the time Jesus gets there, there's this massive crowd. And, and his followers and Jesus are looking for rest. But he shows up and there's all this, these people that want more time with Jesus. Now, again, you can't just kind of read this as if it's not real. It doesn't happen. How would you feel if you, were, if you were Jesus? You've already done so much. You've gotten this heartbreaking news. You're worn out. You haven't eaten. You're tired. Is that the moment that you want to really minister to a huge crowd of people? Jesus has compassion on them. And Mark says, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And again, What the Gospels are doing is showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of so much Old Testament expectation. And this story is aimed at particular in the nature of Jesus, his compassion. In the New Testament, the word compassion is only used by Jesus or to speak of Jesus. And it suggests more than just pity. It's not that he just feels sorry for them. It suggests actual help. Like he's actually going to do something. And what these miracles set forth is Jesus is a man of compassion and a supplier the needs, especially when resources are insufficient. And what John wants, what Mark wants, what the gospel writers want is for us to see the compassion, the help, and the provision of Jesus and come to him in faith confident in his ability to sustain and satisfy. Now, sometimes we hear that phrase that, that there were sheep without a shepherd and we just kind of fly by it. Like it doesn't really land on us. But to, the, to this audience and to these people, uh, it would have had massive, massive significance. You see, all throughout the Bible, especially in Jewish culture, a shepherd is a metaphor for the leader of people. And Jesus looked at this crowd and he says, they have no true leader. They have no one who's really caring for them. They have no one who really loves them. You see, at this time in history, they're under the rule of Herod. And Herod is kind of a pseudo-king, and he's actually the one who murdered Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. John uh, called Herod out for marrying his brother's wife. It's a huge mess. Now, Herod actually liked John the Baptist, or he liked listening to John the Baptist, and he was intrigued by him. He was actually kind of a little bit intimidated by him, a little afraid of him. And Herod's new wife wanted him dead, and so one night at a party, his stepdaughter danced for him, and the boys, um, and Herod promised to give the girl whatever she wanted. And Herod says, half my kingdom is, is yours, which is kind of ironic because Herod isn't even a king. Herod's dad was a king, 
But when his dad died, he, he said in his will, I don't want any of my kids to rule. And so he split his kingdom into fours. And what Herod's new wife had wanted, and so what the stepdaughter asked for, was John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod, who's insecure, he wants to be important, he builds a palace, he throws a party, he invites all his buddies as nobles so that he can display his power. And in this moment, Herod has a choice. He can care about the truth, he can care about what God thinks, he can care about his people and what's best, but he only cares about what makes him feel good and what makes him look good. And Jesus knows that's the ruler that's over these people who are in front of me on the lawn. That's what these people are dealing with. And so Mark in particular, what he wants us to see as a a shepherd, not in a palace, not at a banquet, but in the wilderness where they don't have enough food. And so when Jesus looks at the crowd, he says, I have the answer to what is the greatest need for these people in front of me, which is me, the true king, the great shepherd, And Herod's banquet would end in death, and Jesus hands out the bread of life. Our our passage in verse 14 and 15 uh, tells us that the people kind of figure out what's happening here. Because at the end, they plan to take Jesus by force, and they want to make him to be their political leader. But Jesus escapes because he isn't like the kings of, of the world that are only after money, that are only after power. He doesn't come to overthrow the government. He comes to feed the starving He came to fix the broken things in humanity. He doesn't fight for power. He actually gives that power away. And the kingdom that Jesus brings is totally outside this pervasive human paradigm of like, well, I'm going to go for for mine, and I'm going to go for what makes me comfortable, and I'm going to go for what makes me powerful, and I'm going to go for what makes me popular. Jesus is breaking down that system, and he's ushering in this new way of living where giving our lives away is where we actually find life. He's starting a revolution. He says, because when we give like that, the supply doesn't end. But he doesn't want to do it alone. I mean, Jesus is not like Harry Potter. He's just like, you need bread? Here's bread. Boom, boom, boom. He doesn't just magically make all the bread just appear. He says, I don't want to do this alone. He calls out the disciples. And the compassion of Jesus is contagious. The disciples start to feel for the felt needs of the people. They're like, it's getting late. We're out here in the wilderness. They need, they need food. And, and they're starting to think like ministers. And Mark's gospel tells us that they come up with a plan to solve the problem, which is not a bad plan. It's capitalism. It's going to work. There's high demand. There's supply out there. Send the people. The businesses will make money. The people will get fed. It's going to work. This is all good. Just send the people out. So they have a good plan. But Jesus has a whole other plan that is a logistical nightmare. There's, again, there's 12 to 15,000 people. And he says to his disciples, how about you feed them? You, don't send them away. Don't send them to somebody else to deal with. You feed them. So a little lesson for church world, nine times out of 10, when you recognize a need and you say to yourself, somebody ought to do something about that, you are that somebody. When you can't wait to get the ear of a pastor or elder or leader and say, hey, I've got a great idea. Just be ready to hear them say, that is a great idea. You do it. You make it happen. And Jesus says, I agree, something should be done. You do it. Now, here's the thing about following Jesus that's really just crazy. Because when you do follow Jesus, 
And when he moves in your heart, somebody should do something for them. Somebody should love them in a particular way. He's going to give you some crazy ways to love people. Mark's account gets a little snarky. I kind of like it because they say, so should we take 200 denarii and buy bread? It's like, you're right, Jesus. We do have this extra $30,000 laying around. We weren't really sure what we were going to do with it. Should we just take that? Is that how, should we just, we've been, we, it's burning a hole in our knapsack. Hey, Jesus, remember when you said, hey, go out and do ministry and take nothing with you? We took you serious. So we've got nothing. You see, we're okay with following Jesus. We're okay with loving people until it gets too unrealistic. We're fine with the idea. We're fine with the concept. We want it to happen until it lands on our doorstep and until it just gets too unrealistic. But what I love about this is that Jesus lets them just sit there in their inadequacy. So they find this boy with a Hebrew Lunchable and they bring it to Jesus. And I love this part of the story because it helps us understand what to do in the moments when Jesus asks us for our lunch. This idea of feeding the 5,000, feeding all these people, that's a great idea. That's awesome. But it's not always a great idea when you're the one who's hungry and it's your lunch that they're going to use to do that. Because there is a sense, if we're honest, there is a sense that, Jesus, if I do give you this little bit that I have, will there be enough for me? Because they bring just, just five pieces of bread, two sardines from a boy's lunch, not much. The disciples say, what can this little bit do when the need is so great? And so often that's like us. It's like me. You look and you see the need and you say, God, I want you to do something about it, but I just don't, I don't think I can. And not because we don't care, not because we don't want to see transformation, not because we don't want to see change, not because we don't want to see people be fed, not because we don't want God to use us. It's not because we don't want to love. It's just a genuine appraisal of what we have. We think, God, you can't possibly use our smallness or our brokenness and do something great with it. And Jesus' response to them and his response to you and his response to me, his response to this church is bring it. Bring it. What do you have? Bring me whatever you have. Don't sit there and tell me everything that you don't have. Just hand over the things that I've already given you. Whatever gift or talent or skill or ability or resource or passion or opportunity or place or position in the world that he's given you, bring it to him. Just hand it over. Now, now a lot of times when this text is preached or taught, it always seems to kind of boil down to the simplicity of just give God whatever is in your hands. Whatever lunch that you have, just give it to God and see what he does with it. And, and maybe for that boy in the story, that was easy. Maybe, that, maybe the, he was just so moved by the Spirit of God that it was just no problem and he just handed it over and there was no issue in that transaction for him. But as I've kind of camped in his passions and thought about that and tried to put my imagination there, like, well, what if I'm that boy? What if that's my lunch? Because the crowd has not yet been fed. This is not a proven strategy that everybody's going to get to eat and that there's going to be leftover. So what if it's your lunch 
that they're asking for. Because all you know is that, like, I had a lunch, I brought a lunch with me, I'm very hungry, I'd like to eat that lunch, and now somebody else took it, and I have no lunch. That's all you know. So when God says, give me your lunch, her first thought is, look, well, what are you going to do with it? Now, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to, like, actually be honest about that idea. But we have a suspicion against God. Like, he just wants to take our lunch from us. Like, God, you just want to take my career from me. You just want to take this relationship. You just want to take my money. You just want to take my freedom. You just want to take my time. God, you just want to take from me. You see, the lie that started in the garden is that God's holding out on you. And that lie is deeply ingrained in us. And we're always fighting against that. That God just wants to take from you. That he doesn't have your best interest in mind. And when you're hungry, you hang on tightly to your lunch. And the irony is that that's what actually leaves us starving in life. Because we're holding on to this thing that we just can't bear to lose. We're too afraid to let it go. And God says, listen, if you just hand it over, I'll feed you more than you could imagine. It seems like a rational thought. If I give you my lunch, then I won't have a lunch to eat. And Lord, if I give to you what I have so that other people fed, how do I know that there's enough for me? This is what we're confronted with when we're required to give of ourselves to love others. We'll say, Lord, I want you to use me. I know you want me to invest financially in the kingdom. I know you want me to give my time and my talents, my abilities to serve others. I know you want me to love those that are difficult to love, but right now I just don't have enough. I don't have enough money. I'm super busy. I don't have enough time. But when I get enough, then I'll give you some. But right now I'm afraid of what it will cost me because I just don't have enough And we cling so tightly to the bag because we're afraid of what will happen once God gets his hands on it. You see, the call of Jesus to love him with everything we have and to love others in self-sacrificing ways, it feels like a calling that's beyond our capacity. So we try to take the mission that God's given us and we try to downsize it. Like, what's the least amount that I can do for the kingdom of God? How can I set the bar lower and lower? Or sometimes we just quit altogether. And Jesus gives us opportunity to love the lost and the last and the least of these, to love our enemies and those who hate us and think and behave differently than us. And when God presents us with those opportunities, it's as if we just kind of check our pockets and we're like, I only got five. That's it. That's not enough. We just try to stuff it a little bit deeper where we think God won't be able to get it. And a lot of times when you hear a a message like this where we're talking about loving others and serving others, you think, I'm not even in a place where I can do that because I I myself am wounded and, and broken and scared and alone and small. I can't even think about loving others or serving others because of the place that I'm in personally. And I love where Jesus puts them in this moment where they feel helpless and inadequate Because when they're in that place, they can see what Jesus can do. He takes the food, he blesses it, he breaks it, distributes it, and multiplies it so there's 12 baskets left over. Jesus does a miracle. 
It's a miracle what he does. There's a lot of people that have said, well, it's not really a, a miracle. It's just that when the people saw what the boy did, they were so moved, and it was like this kind of contagious compassion, and everyone's like, well, okay, I actually brought something too, and it became like this big like potluck you know, type thing, and everyone just kind of gave food. That's how a lot of people will like rationalize how this story happened. But even if that happened, it just wouldn't have been enough food uh, to feed 20,000 people. So if that's you, you kind of just need to get over it. It's a miracle. In fact, later on, we're going to see in just a second, Jesus walks on water. So he does miracles. I don't know what to tell you. It's just how he is. But the progression of what Jesus does here is extremely important. In Mark chapter 6, verse 41, listen again how this whole thing goes down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks he broke the loaves, and then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. There's a progression of what God will do with your life and with my life if we submit to him in this. It's blessed, it's broken, and it's given away. It's blessed, it's broken, and it's given away. There's nothing extraordinary about the loaves and the fish. Jesus blesses something very common, very ordinary, very small, and he blesses it, and he breaks it. And that's always what God does when we, when we give him what we have. And that might not sound very comforting. In fact, if you're doing the math, it's actually quite scary. Because what's so hard about that for us is that we have the assumption that in order for, for God to use us, we have to be, we have to be whole. God, if you're going to use me, I've got to be dialed in. I have to have done my quiet time every day. I have to have had a, a perfect prayer journal. I have to have had perfect attendance at church. I have to have been giving. I have to have been kind to my spouse and haven't yelled at my kids in at least a week. God, if you're going to use me, I have to be whole. I can't be fractured or broken. I'm going to take just a second because I need to preach this next part to myself, okay? You can listen in, but I'm going to talk to myself for a second. The reality is... God only uses what is broken. He uses broken things and broken people. You cannot feed the crowds. You cannot be of use to the world until you allow God to break you. And the breaking that feels like it's going to kill you is actually what makes you useful for everyone else. You could not minister to them as well if you were strong. You couldn't love them as well if you felt confident in your own strength. Brokenness is what causes us to hand everything over to God. And the, and the reality is if you don't hand it over, ain't nothing going to happen. A lot of us want to be used by God to serve others. I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is we just don't want to be broken first. And it doesn't make sense at the time, but it's the mercy of God who wants you to be fully alive in him and know how deeply you're loved by him. He breaks before he distributes. He broke the loves and loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Jesus does the breaking. You are the one that gives to others what God has given you. That is the beauty of love. You are the one who gets broken, but you're also the one who is giving. You see, a, a life of loving others like Jesus is, is not magic. 
it's not, Jesus, I just pray that you take care of all the poor and hurting people in the world while I stream Netflix for hours and hours and hours. It doesn't work like that. The supernatural thing happens when God breaks you and then begins to distribute. And that's really the tension in this story, that God is the one who will do the miraculous thing. God's the one who does the miracle, but you have to be willing to give him what you have, and then you have to be willing to give others what God has given you. Jesus is serious when he looks at his followers and he says, you feed them because he's the one that's going to give them the resources to be able to care for people. And so if God tells you to do a thing, he's going to give you the resources to get it done. He's going to multiply the little bit that you have so that it becomes useful to love others. And when God gives you an opportunity to love others, it's not just about what he wants to give to them. It's about what he wants to give you, what he wants to do in you, what he wants for you. Romans tells us, Paul in Romans, he says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And look, this story is not trying to, about trying to barter with God, like, okay, God, I'll give you some money if you heal my sickness. Or God, I'll do this thing if you help me pay my, bill, my bills. And a lot of times we think like, okay, God, you just really want me to prove to you that I'm super serious about this, about making a sacrifice. And if I can prove that I'm super serious, then that's when you're going to bless me. It's not about proving to God that you're super serious. He just wants your hands to be open so that he can fill them with something better. He wants you to let go of some things so they can give you something better. We cling on to this bag lunch like it's the only thing. And he's like, there's 12 baskets left over. There's more in the leftovers than there ever was in the lunch to begin with. And when you're holding on to the bag lunch, you're missing the opportunity to get a basket from him. And so whatever the Lord's asking you to give to him so that you can love others, not only does he want to bless others, but he wants to bless you, and that's grace. I want to hear something really, really important right now. Because this is not about, look, if you give to God, he's going to make you rich. Because I don't believe in that. But I do believe that he takes care of us and he provides what we need. And the fear that we have that God will take from us and then abandon us is a lie. He's a God of abundance, not a, not a God of scarcity. The thing that's so interesting about this miracle, and we're almost done here, is that it's totally unnecessary. These people are not dying. This, this wasn't like Jairus' daughter, which happens earlier in the book. It's, it's not an emergency these people are, are just hungry. And you can go days without food. Jesus knows that. Jesus did that. The disciples' idea would have worked fine. In fact, it would have worked out for all the businesses in town. It would have been a great idea. Just send them away. We'll take a little break. They'll get fed. Businesses get money. Everybody comes back. It'll be great. But Jesus creates this crisis. Jesus creates the drama in the situation. You feed them. Well, why? Why can't we just do it the other way? He says, no, no, no. This is the way. You feed them. Why? Because he wants to show them how small they are and how big he is. He wants them to be aware of how much they're decreasing so that he can show off the increase. He wants them to see how much they need him to love others. And the miracle might not have been necessary for their physical need, 
But this miracle was deeply necessary for their souls. And the reason that Jesus brings people into your life for you to love is so that you would trust in the one who feeds thousands and that he can sustain you. Okay, last five verses, verse 16. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, and when they got into the boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum, by now it was dark, and and Jesus had not yet joined them, and a strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Okay, let's finish this real quick. Quick question here. Why did they leave Jesus? Uh, They go down to the boat, and, you know, they're ready to go. He's not there yet. And I imagine one of the disciples, probably Peter, just says, okay, this is taking way too long. Let's just go. Like, why not wait around? I mean, the guy just did a miracle. And you're like, ah, too long. Not waiting for him. We got to go. Where do you have to go? They left Jesus. Now, for a first century Palestinian Jew, the sea was not a place of comfort or rest. It wasn't like a vacation spot for them. Um, In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Job in particular, the sea is a place of evil. It's a a place of death. So you got to get the picture because the disciples, as the storm kicks up, in the the Greek, the word picture or the idea is that they're, they're tormenting against the sea. That's kind of the phrase that's used to describe this as they're rowing in this storm. They're tormenting against the forces of evil and they're losing ground. And then they see someone who's walking on the sea, trampling over evil, and they're terrified. So kind of get the picture here. Try to understand what they would have been thinking. The people of God are terrified of the sea. It represents evil. It represents darkness. It represents death. And they think that Jesus is a ghost, the other gospels tell us. And so they think, oh, this is it. This is how it ends for us. Why did we ever listen to Peter? Why didn't we just wait for Jesus? We had to get in the boat. Storm kicks up and those ghosts, they're terrified. The the disciples are convinced that they're going to die in this storm. Death is raging. This ghost shows up. They're terrified. What's happening here, what John is showing us, this picture here, is that Jesus is walking over death. The literal idea is he's trampling over death. I tried to think of an illustration for like trampling that would be effective. And the only one I have is that I've only ever been in one fight, one real fight in my life. And it was at a fraternity party that I was not a part of the fraternity. was not supposed to be there. I was running my mouth and I got jumped and literally trampled on. It's probably not a great illustration to use, but it was the only thing I could think of, of like what that trampling was. So Jesus hears trampling over death. He's intersecting with and walking over the greatest fears of his closest followers. Two things as we close here. Even the closest to Jesus will get anxious and disoriented at times. Even the people who are closest to Jesus will get anxious and disoriented at times. I mean, these guys have seen Jesus do amazing things firsthand, and they're still afraid, like I have been, like you've been. And what does Jesus do when they act like that? Do we see him reprimand them there? 
he reminds them, he reminds us, he reminds me of who he is. He shows up, they're freaking out. And he says, it's me. I'm here. In our world, even in our church, fear and anxiety, it leads to disunity, which breaks the heart of God. The, the pace of the culture, the plan of the enemy will continue to stir up fear and anxiety in us. There are waves and storms that are coming towards us, church, around topics like sexuality and politics and the future. The storms are coming towards us. We're afraid of the, of the future. Remember when we were terrified about what millennials were going to do? These 20-year-olds who are living with their parents don't have jobs. They're going to end up killing us. Turns out they got jobs and bought houses. Good job, guys. But there's a fear of the future coming. And in all these things and in all the other things, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is. He's sovereign over our every need. He's sovereign over every storm. He's sovereign over our lives and he tramples over death. He meets us in our fear and he meets us in our anxiety by reintroducing himself. He says, it's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. The Bible tells us that the other gospels and the other gospels that the storm obeys his voice. As soon as he says, it is I, the storm is calm. Jesus answers our greatest fears with the greatness of his presence. He answers our greatest fears with the greatness of his presence. And as they take Jesus in, they, ought, they make it to where they're going. It's another miracle. And the point is that Jesus is with us in our storms and he takes us home. Christians are not promised a life without storms. This church is not promised a life without storms. We're promised a life with the presence of God in the midst of those storms. And there are storms all over. And there will be storms in the future, financial storms, health storms, relational storms, storms in this church. We're going through a storm. Although I do see the sun peeking through the clouds and a lot of blue ocean in front of us. But there are storms, and in those storms is the presence of God. I think I've probably experienced this more acutely over the past months than any time I can really remember. And my prayers in those moments have not grown more theologically or doctrinally robust I haven't necessarily ascended to deeper thoughts about God. In fact, I've probably held more to the basic promises of God in these days and in this season more than ever before. The prayer for daily bread has meant more to me in this season than any, any I can ever remember. God, give me what I need in this next moment. Because even if I had what I thought it would take, it wouldn't be enough. Even if I had what I thought it would take, God, it wouldn't be enough. So be bread. Be what I need. Let me be aware of who you are in the storm right now. Let me, let me know what I need most right now is you. In my anxiety, in my fear, in my lacking, in my, I only got five pieces of bread, superabound. And let me know that you're with me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you for your word. And God, this might be a very familiar story to many of us. And I hope, God, that we did not just fall into a mode where we just heard the same old story. 
But God, I pray that even right now, by the power of your spirit, God, you're applying it in a very specific way to our hearts and to our minds, God, that we would walk out of here walking in the story and the truth of who you are. God, we can trust you. We can trust you with the little that we have or, God, even with the much that we have. We don't have to cling to it as if you're a God who just wants to take and abuse and use. God, we can freely give because you did not spare your own son. How will you not also give us exactly what we need? You've given us your spirit. You're in us. You're with us. You're for us. God, let us be reminded of that. Let us be the kind of church that freely gives, not because we're anticipating the 12 baskets left over, because we want to give those away too. God, let us be the church that freely gives so that we know you in a deeper and more intimate way. And Jesus, we know that you are better. We need you for that. It's in your name we pray, amen.